Section 15 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1 by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 1740, Itat 31. Footnote. On October the 29th of this year, James Boswell was born. End of footnote. In 1740, he wrote for the Gentleman's Magazine the preface, Dagger. Footnote. In this preface is found the following lively passage. The Roman gazetteers are defective in several material ornaments of style. They never end an article with the mystical hint. This occasions great speculation. They seem to have been ignorant of such engaging introductions as We hear it is strongly reported, or of that ingenious but threadbare excuse for a downright lie it wants confirmation End of footnote. life of sir francis drake asterisk and the first parts of those of admiral blake asterisk footnote the lives of blake and drake were certainly written with a political aim the war with Spain was going on, and the Tory party was doing its utmost to rouse the country against the Spaniards. It was a time, according to Johnson, when the nation was engaged in a war with an enemy whose insults, ravages, and barbarities have long called for vengeance. Johnson's Works, Volume 6, page 293, end of footnote. And of Philip Baretier, footnote. Beretti's childhood surpassed even that of J. S. Mill. At the age of nine, he was master of five languages, Greek and Hebrew being two of them. In his twelfth year, he applied more particularly to the study of the fathers. At the age of fourteen, he published Anti Artemonius, Sive Initium Evangelii Sancti Ioannis Adversus Artemonium Vindi Carton. The same year the University of Halle offered him the degree of doctor in philosophy. His theses, or philosophical positions, which he printed, ran through several editions in a few weeks. He was a deep student of mathematics, and astronomy was his favourite subject. His health broke down under his studies, and he died in 1740 in the twentieth year of his age. Johnson's Works, Volume 6, page 376, end of footnote. Both which he finished the following year. He also wrote an essay on epitaphs, footnote. He wrote also in 1756 a dissertation on the epitaphs written by Pope, end of footnote. And an epitaph on Phillips, a musician. Epitaph on Phillips, Anno Domini, 1740, which was afterwards published with some other pieces of his in Mrs. Williams's Miscellanies. This epitaph is so exquisitely beautiful that I remember even Lord Keynes, strangely prejudiced as he was against Dr. Johnson, was compelled to allow it very high praise. It has been ascribed to Mr. Garrick, from its appearing at first with the signature G. But I have heard Mr. Garrick declare that it was written by Dr. Johnson, 
and give the following account of the manner in which it was composed johnson and he were sitting together when amongst other things garrick repeated an epitaph upon this phillips by a dr wilkes in these words exalted soul whose harmony could please the lovesick virgin and the gouty ease could jarring discord like amphion move to beauteous order and harmonious love rest here in peace till angels bid thee rise and meet thy blessed saviour in the skies johnson shook his head at these commonplace funereal lines and said to garrick i think davy i can make a better then stirring about his tea for a little while in a state of meditation he almost extempore produced the following verses footnote in the original and gentleman's magazine volume ten page four six four the title of this poem as there given is an epitaph upon the celebrated claudie phillips musician who died very poor End of footnote. phillips whose touch harmonious could remove the pangs of guilty power or hapless love rest here distressed by poverty no more here find that calm thou gavest so oft before sleep undisturbed within this peaceful shrine till angels wake thee with a note like thine footnote the epitaph of phillips is in the porch of wolverhampton church the prose part of it is curious near this place lies charles claudius phillips whose absolute contempt of riches and inimitable performances upon the violin made him the admiration of all that knew him he was born in wales made the tour of europe and after the experience of both kinds of fortune died in seventeen thirty two mr garrick appears not to have recited the verses correctly the original being as follows exalted soul thy various sounds could please the lovesick virgin and the gouty ease could jarring crowds like old amphion move to beauteous order and harmonious love rest here in peace till angels bid thee rise and meet thy saviour's consort in the skies blakeway consort is defined in johnson's dictionary as a number of instruments playing together End of footnote. epigram on sibba i tart thirty one at the same time that mr garrick favoured me with this anecdote he repeated a very pointed epigram by johnson on george the second and collie sibba which has never yet appeared and of which i know not the exact date footnote i have no doubt that it was written in seventeen forty one for the second line is clearly a parody of a line in the chorus of sibber's birthday ode for that year the chorus is as follows while thou our master of the main revives eliza's glorious reign the great plantagenets look down and see your race adorn your crown 
Gentleman's Magazine, volume 9, page 549. In the life of Barretier, Johnson had also this fling at George the Second. Princes are commonly the last by whom merit is distinguished. Johnson's Works, volume 6, page 381. Dr. Johnson afterwards gave it to me himself. Augustus still survives in Morrow's strain, and Spencer's verse prolongs Eliza's reign. Great Georgia's acts let tuneful Sibber sing, for nature formed the poet for the king. One of Cromwell's speeches, Anno Domini, 1741. In 1741, footnote, Hester Lynch Salisbury, afterwards Mrs. Thrale, and later on Mrs. Piozzi, was born on January the 27th, 1741, end of footnote. He wrote for the Gentleman's Magazine the preface, asterisk, conclusion of his lives of Drake and Berettier, dagger, a free translation of the jests of Heracles. Footnote. This piece is certainly not by Johnson. It contains more than one ungrammatical passage. It is impossible to believe that he wrote such a sentence as the following. Another, having a cask of wine sealed up at the top, but his servant boring a hole at the bottom, stole the greatest part of it away, some time after, having called a friend to taste the wine, he found the vessel almost empty, etc. End footnote. With an introduction, Dagger, and, I think, the following pieces. Debate on the proposal of Parliament to Cromwell to assume the title of King, abridged, modified, and digested Dagger. Footnote. Mr. Carlyle, by the use of the term imaginary, editors cromwell's letters and speeches volume three page two two nine seems to imply that he does not hold with boswell in assigning this piece to johnson i am inclined to think nevertheless that boswell is right if it is johnson's it is doubly interesting as showing the method which he often followed in writing the parliamentary debates when notes were given him while for the most part he kept to the speaker's train of thoughts, he dealt with the language much as it pleased him. In the Gentleman's Magazine, Cromwell speaks as if he were wearing a flowing wig and were addressing a Parliament in the days of George the Second. He is thus made to conclude speech eleven. For my part, could I multiply my person or dilate my power, I should dedicate myself wholly to this great end, in the prosecution of which I should implore the blessing of God upon your counsels and endeavours. Gentleman's Magazine, Volume 11, page 100. The following are the words which correspond to this in the original. If I could help you to many, and multiply myself into many, that would be to serve you in regard to settlement, but I shall pray to God Almighty that he would direct you to do what is according to his will. And this is that poor account I am able to give of myself in this thing. Carlyle's Cromwell, volume 3, page 255, and a footnote. 
Translation of Abbe Guillon's Dissertation on the Amazons, Dagger. Translation of Fontenelle's Panegyric on Dr. Morin, Dagger. Two notes upon this appear to me undoubtedly his. He this year and the two following wrote the parliamentary debates. He told me himself that he was the sole composer of them for those three years only. He was not, however, precisely exact in his statement, which he mentioned from hasty recollection, for it is sufficiently evident that his composition of them began November the 19th, 1740, and ended February the 23rd, 1742-3. Asterisk. Footnote, see Appendix A. End of footnote. It appears from some of Cave's letters to Dr. Birch that Cave had better assistance for that branch of his magazine than has been generally supposed, and that he was indefatigable in getting it made as perfect as he could. Cave's Parliamentary Debates, Itat 32 Thus, 21st July, 1735 I trouble you with the enclosed, because you said you could easily correct what is here given for Lord C.'s speech, footnote, Lord Chesterfield, end footnote. I beg you will do so as soon as you can for me, because the month is far advanced. And, 15th of July, 1737, as you remember the debates so far as to perceive the speeches already printed are not exact, I beg the favour that you will peruse the enclosed, and in the best manner your memory will serve, correct the mistaken passages, or add anything that is omitted. I should be very glad to have something of the Duke of N's speech, which will be particularly of service. Footnote, Duke of Newcastle, end of footnote. A gentleman has Lord Bathurst's speech to add something to. And July the 3rd, 1744, you will see what's Stupid, low, abominable stuff is put. Footnote. I suppose in another compilation of the same kind, Boswell. End of footnote. Upon your noble and learned friend's character. Footnote. Doubtless Lord Hardwick, Boswell. End of footnote. Such as I should quite reject and endeavour to do something better towards doing justice to the character. But as I cannot expect to attain my desires in that respect, it will be a great satisfaction, as well as an honour to our work, to have the favour of the genuine speech. It is a method that several have been pleased to take, as I could show, but I think myself under a restraint. I shall say so far that I have had some by a third hand, which I understood well enough to come from the first, others by penny post, footnote, the delivery of letters by the penny post was originally confined to the cities of London and Westminster, the borough of Southwark, and the respective suburbs thereof. In 1801 the postage was raised to Toppins. The term suburbs must have had a very limited signification, 
for it was not till 1831 that the limits of this delivery were extended to all places within three miles of the general post office. Ninth report of the commissioners of the post office, 1837, page 4, into footnote. And others by the speakers themselves, who have been pleased to visit St. John's Gate and show particular marks of their being pleased. Footnote Birch's manuscripts in the British Museum, 4302 Boswell. Johnson's Parliamentary Debates, Anno Domini, 1741. There is no reason, I believe, to doubt the veracity of Cave. It is, however, remarkable that none of these letters are in the years during which Johnson alone furnished the debates, and one of them is in the very year after he had ceased from that labour. Johnson told me that as soon as he found that the speeches were thought genuine, he determined that he would write no more of them, for he would not be accessory to the propagation of falsehood. And such was the tenderness of his conscience that a short time before his death he expressed his regret for his having been the author of fictions which had passed for realities. Footnote. See post, December 1784, in Nichols's Anecdotes. If we may trust Hawkins, it is likely that Johnson's tenderness of conscience cost Cave a good deal. For he writes that while Johnson composed the debates, the sale of the magazine increased from ten to fifteen thousand copies a month. Cave manifested his good fortune by buying an old coach and a pair of older horses. Hawkins's Johnson, page 123, end of footnote. He nevertheless agreed with me in thinking that the debates which he had framed were to be valued as orations upon questions of public importance. They have accordingly been collected in volumes, properly arranged and recommended to the notice of parliamentary speakers by a preface written by no inferior hand. Footnote. I am assured that the editor is Mr. George Chalmers, whose commercial works are well known and esteemed. Boswell. End footnote. I must, however, observe that although there is in those debates a wonderful store of political information and very powerful eloquence, I cannot agree that they exhibit the manner of each particular speaker, as Sir John Hawkins seems to think. But indeed, what opinion can we have of his judgment and taste in public speaking, who presumes to give as the characteristics of two celebrated orators the deep-mouthed rancour of Pulteney. Footnote. The characteristic of Pulteney's oratory is thus given in Hazlitt's North Cold's Conversations, page 288. Old Mr. Tolcher used to say of the famous Pulteney, My Lord Bath always speaks in blank verse. End of footnote. And the yelping pertinacity of Pitt. Footnote. Hawkins's Life of Johnson, page 100, Boswell. End of footnote. This year I find that his tragedy of Irene had been for some time ready for the stage, and that his necessities made him desirous of getting as much as he could for it without delay. 
for there is the following letter from mr cave to dr birch in the same volume of manuscripts in the british museum from which i copied those above quoted they were most obligingly pointed out to me by sir william musgrave one of the curators of that noble repository Bibliotheca Harleana, Itat 32. September the ninth, 1741. I have put Mr. Johnson's play into Mr. Gray's hands in order to sell it to him, if he is inclined to buy it, but I doubt whether he will or not. Footnote, a bookseller of London, Boswell. End of footnote. He would dispose of the copy and whatever advantage may be made by acting it would your society or any gentleman or body of men that you know take such a bargain footnote not the royal society but the society for the encouragement of learning of which dr birch was a leading member their object was to assist authors in printing expensive works it existed from about 1735 to 1746, when, having incurred a considerable debt, it was dissolved. Boswell. End of footnote. He and I are very unfit to deal with theatrical persons. Fleetwood was to have acted it last season, but Johnson's diffidence, or blank blank, prevented it. Footnote. There is no erasure here, but a mere blank to fill up which may be an exercise for ingenious conjecture boswell end of footnote i have already mentioned that irene was not brought into public notice till garrick was manager of drury lane theatre osborne the bookseller anno domini seventeen forty two seventeen forty two thirty three in seventeen forty two Footnote. Johnson, writing to Dr. Taylor on June the 10th, 1742, says, I propose to get Charles of Sweden ready for this winter, and shall therefore, as I imagine, be much engaged for some months with the dramatic writers, into whom I have scarcely looked for many years. Keep Irene close. You may send it back at your leisure. Notes and queries charles of sweden must have been a play which he projected End of footnote. he wrote for the gentleman's magazine the preface dagger the parliamentary debates asterisk essay on the account of the conduct of the duchess of marlborough asterisk then the popular topic of conversation this essay is a short but masterly performance we find him in number 13 of his rambler censuring a profligate sentiment in that account Footnote. the profligate sentiment was that to tell a secret to a friend is no breach of fidelity because the number of persons trusted is not multiplied a man and his friend being virtually the same rambler number 13 end of footnote and again insisting upon it strenuously in conversation. Footnote. Journal of a Tour to the Hebrides, 3rd edition, page 167, September the 10th, 1773. Boswell, end of footnote. An account of the life of Peter Berman, asterisk, 
i believe chiefly taken from a foreign publication as indeed he could not himself know much about vermin additions to his life of Boretier asterisk the life of sydenham asterisk afterwards prefixed to dr swan's edition of his works proposals for printing bibliotheca harleyana or a catalogue of the library of the earl of oxford asterisk footnote this piece contains a passage in honour of some great critic may the shade at least of one great english critic rest without disturbance and may no man presume to insult his memory who wants his learning his reason or his wit johnson's works volume five page one eight two bentley had died on july the fourteenth of this year and there can be little question that bentley is meant End footnote. his account of that celebrated collection of books in which he displays the importance to literature of what the french call a catalogue raisonne when the subjects of it are extensive and various and it is executed with ability cannot fail to impress all his readers with admiration of his philological attainments it was afterwards prefixed to the first volume of the catalogue in which the latin accounts of books were written by him he was employed in this business by mr thomas osborne the bookseller who purchased the library for thirteen thousand pounds the sum which mr oldies says in one of his manuscripts was not more than the binding of the books had cost yet as dr johnson assured me the slowness of the sale was such that there was not much gained by it it has been confidently related with many embellishments that johnson one day knocked osborne down in his shop with a folio and put his foot upon his neck the simple truth i had from johnson himself sir he was impertinent to me and i beat him but it was not in his shop it was in my own chamber Footnote. there is nothing to tell dearest lady but that he was insolent and i beat him and that he was a blockhead and told of it which i should never have done i have beat many a fellow but the rest had the wit to hold their tongues Piozzi's Anecdotes, page 233. In the Life of Pope, Johnson thus mentions Osborne. Pope was ignorant enough of his own interest to make another change, and introduced Osborne contending for the prize among the booksellers, Dunciad, book 2, line 167. Osborne was a man entirely destitute of shame, without sense of any disgrace but that of poverty. The shafts of satire were directed equally in vain against Sibber and Osborne. Being repelled by the impenetrable impudence of one, and deadened by the impassive dullness of the other. Johnson's Works, Volume 8, page 302, end of footnote, end of section 15.